Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. After the examiner's phone call, Ian says they stayed in to see if there was any mention of the murder on the news. There was a report, but it was thin on detail. There was a body, a woman. Ian says they might have said French. Ian was the first journalist to arrive at the crime scene. He and Jules drove slowly down the laneway, stopping only when they saw guarder cars. They got out. Jules took some photographs, and the guards walked towards them. I started to walk down here and about where the telegraph pole is, thereabouts. Uh, I would have met two um, members of Angada Shiakana and inquired of them, was there any statement forthcoming? And I was referred to the press office. I had no knowledge of the location of the body at that time, although it, it, it transpired it was outside and it was uh, near the gate. You can see a five-bar gate there. But, so, um, okay, so you see a, a crime scene of, like, ten, ten people down there, people in overalls and stuff. You must have thought this is... Someone got, someone got murdered. Well, I mean, I had what information, and I've told you what information I had. Right. And but, it, so it was obvious there was something going on here. I had no hard information, no names, no details... Yeah. And how long were you here for? How long did you Ma- A matter for? of uh, minutes. But something about those few minutes didn't sit well with a local guard at the scene, Martin Malone. Earlier that year, an elderly man had fallen from a cliff and Ian had come out to report on it for the local paper. Malone recalled that back on that day, Ian had been relaxed and chatty and wearing casual clothes. But at the crime scene of Sophie's murder, he seemed different. He was wearing a button-down shirt and a long, dark overcoat. The way the guard put it later in a statement was, it appeared to me as if he was acting at the scene of Sophie's murder. Acting, like he was just playing the part of a journalist. Ian makes out like the guard stonewalled him, but they say Ian only asked a few questions and then hurried from the scene, which they thought was strange. Malone also knew about Ian's reputation, as a heavy drinker, and there'd been a domestic incident with Jules that year. It all amounted to little more than a hunch, a gut feeling, but it meant that fewer than five hours after the body was discovered, Ian was already on the guard's radar. Ian spent Christmas in a frenzy at the typewriter. He wrote half a dozen stories about the murder over those first few days. 
The day after Christmas, he came up for air and left the cottage. I'd gone into town uh, on, 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 I think, what, what, early in the morning to get some messages, some briquettes and milk, and then I noticed I was being observed then by two officers. I knew one of them uh, was a member of Ngata Shekana. I didn't know the other. I guessed he was. The two officers both filed statements about this incident. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the second part of my fascinating conversation with Alison Sweeney. We're not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right back in where we left off. And again, just quickly, apologies for the audio quality and listener discretion is advised given the triggering and upsetting content of our conversation. So let's dive right back in. For me, there are, there are so many areas that are problematic, which means that you're taking down certain routes and so much time and energy was invested really just in one route. Everything led to one person. He implicates himself in many ways, and then he doesn't like the attention having courted it. And there were certain things that were said, and I know you brought them up to me about his violence and previous violence in the past that you cannot overlook, that you have to consider. And so in in one sense, when he appears on the scene first, well, he's a journalist, but also he's got a history of violence and a recent history of violence, then it's quite right that he should he should be looked at amongst others. That's right. So, there, so you could really narrow down that there are lots of things about it that you hear in the podcast and on Netflix that sound silly that you can't believe that can't really be evidence that the police were taking seriously his false confession his confessions felt very um i don't know how to say it unrealistic to me or you know perfectly explainable that he would be crying i mean if if i were accused of murder and i didn't do it you could be sure that i would be crying uh, at this attention brought to my brought to my doorstep, you know, there's there's lots of reasons for those types of comments that they are are attributed to him. But what you what what sounds to me like you can narrow it down to are what are the scratches on the backs of his hands, which they drew a picture of instead of taking a photo of, and, and their justification for that was sort of shocking. But maybe you can speak more to was that the norm at the time really a stick figure drawing my son could have done. Well, yeah, body maps were used a lot. I have to say when, when I first started at New Scotland Yard, I was more used to seeing body maps of injuries than I was seeing pictures. Um, and particularly in West Cork, you know, were, were they using the latest technology? I would imagine probably not. But of course, it's another major problem because we haven't got photographic evidence we've got someone drawing it and then them doing an experiment to see if you climbed up a tree and you're cutting down a christmas tree would you indeed get those cuts on your hands that have been cited by multiple people but if it's going to form a main plank of your case the garda should be invested in doing far more and far better of documenting Mm -hmm. the case and then where does jules fit in for you on that because their story did change several times that night about what happened that night. First, he was in bed with her all night. And then she, when she was confronted, it became like, oh, he got up in the middle of the night. And then he says he went to the studio, which 
was next door, but it's really not next door. It's two football fields away. So really, she is not uh, um, an alibi for him all of a sudden. And she says there was an injury he had before when he came back that he didn't have before. So how did you feel about those comments? Yes. And well, I I think firstly, the first wife, Sarah, I would like to have uh, an interview with her because I think that she would give a very clear picture of him. Um, that's who he was married to in Gloucester. Right. And so I think the the demise of that relationship and how things unfolded would be very interesting to learn about because it seemed that what happened there then took him to West Cork. You know, he says he had a very successful He had to change career. his whole life. Yeah. Right? He, he reinvented himself and people who knew him before said he was a shadow of himself uh, afterward, a broken man after his the divorce. Yeah. So was there a history of violence? Was there a history of abuse? We know that he wasn't on the title deeds to the house. She came from a very wealthy family. He was trying to up his game and his status and that mattered to him. He was trying to drop his Northern accent. So some of these things that we're hearing from his sister are very important. Mm -hmm. And he goes to West Cork and he has a 25-year relationship with Jules and there's a very serious history of violence. And that I was, say very serious I just, history because that's what you brought up to me first of all. That I have to tell you, that blew my mind. I mean, here we are. It's a case about a woman who had a horrible, was murdered in a horrible fashion. And then sort of as a side note, they talk about this spousal abuse, domestic violence that is, I mean, she the, the, the way some people described her... Um, abuse and the and the bruises that they saw and the damage to her face and I, it it was not a cat not that any of it's okay but it wasn't some sort of small smack on the ass or so it, it is not what you thought i mean i just found myself like screaming at my radio and and then immediately picking up the phone to call you like how is that not the whole focus of this conversation how how did we meet this man for three episodes before we learn that about him. Yes. And I, in a way, I was glad that you got so animated and heated about it because it it was just dropped in there. In fact, in all the productions, you know, as if it was not really significant or consequential and it is significant and it is consequential. And we could say, well, back in Ireland, back in the day, well, domestic violence was just rife, which it was, by the way. And we have to think about different cultures and people not speaking out about things. Because in Ireland, I've worked in both North and uh, and around Dublin and all around Ireland. The the I, you know, really the culture is you keep your business to yourself. Um, people don't talk. Loose lips sink right. ships. There's a very closed, <laughs> although there's strong bonds in the community you don't talk out about things like domestic violence so but they're not so that explains the other people not going to her you know like her daughters did and said why are you still with him right like that that explains the other friends who sort of turned a blind eye that but both of them are english yeah right? so, so that, jules is welsh and he's english and he when he's when it's put to him in all productions and it's put to her, the oh. their reactions are very interesting because the, there there is catalog well it's catalogued and it is crime reported and it is witnessed by other people in terms of the serious levels of her head injuries, 
And she says that she's not afraid of him. He's not violent. So that is a huge problem, her saying, well, he's not violent when there's clear evidence that he is. But that breaks my heart for her. And, and that's a whole separate conversation. The, the part I, I literally, the anger, the rage, like climbs up to my ears because in every production he would say, uh, there are two people, what, oh my gosh, the quote was something like, I wasn't the only one there. There's two people in every, I, I mean, he immediately deflects like it's partially her fault. And then takes responsibility, you know, uh, uh, but I shouldn't have done it. But but the first thing out of his mouth is, you don't know what she did to make, I'm paraphrasing, but I was so enraged by the way he responded to the allegations every, every time it was brought up. Yes, he normalizes it. He minimizes it. He even uses Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and said, well, we're kind of yes. like that. We'd go out drinking and half a dozen of one, half a dozen of another, but we're still together. And there's always two sides to every story. Um, it was when I was in drink. And actually what we know about domestic abusers, it's not just when they're in drink and we're not just looking for physical violence. We're looking for control. And... We see control issues from him in spades, right? right? There's huge control issues. So, you know, and he he references by saying, we've been together for 25 years. That's longer than most marriages. Therefore, you're going to expect a little bit of combustion. You know, that's how he, and I agree with you, it, it got my heckles up straight away, just the way that he talked about it, how those interviewing him let him off the hook on it, as if, well, right. these things just happen. No, they don't just happen. And he was a violent man. I'm glad that the judge in the libel trial made that clear. You are a violent man. Mm. And here, as you say, we've got a brutal murder of a woman. Now, even with Ian Bailey and Jules, they say that when he drinks whiskey, he his violence, he loses it. And Jules says he's like a child, you know, lashes out. Well, that opens things up because he was, as you said, you know, Jules originally said, well, he was with me the whole night. And she was very confident in that statement. I knew where he was, therefore it couldn't be him. Then gradually we start to understand that that wasn't so. We understand that he got right. up in the middle of the night and she didn't know about that. But by by the morning, he brought her a cup of coffee. He claims, and he says himself, he admits that he got up, but he claims that he wrote an article in the cottage and her backtrack in on the that, studio, right? Yeah. Well, he says that in he a separate wrote it, building. he penned it in the cottage first, and then he went and typed it up oh, in the studio. Oh, okay, so right, right. So it requires two or three different rewrites of this history from him. Yeah, it, correct. And Jules then changes her story and says, well, that he must have been writing because there was the article, and the article wasn't there before. Well, my partner doesn't know what I'm writing or what I'm working on. I don't show him. Right. You know, I'm sure with you, you don't talk about everything you're writing and the timeline, the sequence of it. So he could have just produced an article and said that he he wrote it in the night. But the point is, he wasn't where he said he was and he wasn't where she said he was. So it opens things up as to, well, where was he? Was he actually in the kitchen or was he in the studio? And as you say, the studio isn't just attached next door. You have to walk out to it. It's in a, you know, 10 minute location away and Sophie's place is, I think, another 20 minutes on. It's all 
it's all viable. He could be there. No one knows right. where he is. And he had been drinking that night and he had been drinking right. whiskey from his own admission. <sighs> right. This comes down to the crux of my feelings about the case. His behavior that night, the changing of the story of where he was with Jules without on his own in the middle of the night. And then my question to you in that just because you have that kind of relationship and you're that kind of man, it does not make you a murderer. But do you feel that given the surrounding circumstances, does that then put him at the top of your list or, or certainly capable of that kind of rage? Because it does seem to me like what happened to Sophie was filled with, like you said, it was sudden, it was violent and there was no other motive. They didn't steal anything. They didn't take anything. Obviously there was anger or rage that happened and on the fly, it wasn't that they brought something with them. They picked up what they had that was right there and killed her with it. So do you think that fits in? I mean, do you think that fits in with the kind of rage Jules describes over the course of their 20 plus year relationship? It's a good question. And with violence against women and girls, you always have to look at somebody's previous behavior. You know, uh, we do have someone, Sophie, who's brutally murdered in a situation that seemed to have unfolded then and there. And it is so brutal. I think Superintendent Dwyer said it was over the top violence. Well, we have to bear in mind that he's never attended, you know, as far as I know, anyway, multiple murders because they didn't have them there in the, in the locale. And I don't know even if he was from Dublin, what, how many murders and crime scenes he had attended. So, so sometimes you hear detectives say things, it's the worst case I've ever worked on. And then you find out they've only worked three murders, for example. Right. Right. So, you know, context is important, but seeing the crime scene, seeing the levels of blood, seeing what her parents or hear and seeing and hear, hearing her parents describe what they saw of what remained of her and what happened in terms of the sequencing. Yes, it was violent. It was brutal. And I believe it was in the moment. And here you have someone describing a man who, when he not, well, I mean, I don't know when it's, if it was when he always drank, and I'm always very careful when I hear victims of domestic abuse say, well, it's always when he drinks, because actually when I would then work with them, I find out it's not. There's lots of other times when alcohol's not involved. And like I said, I'm not always just looking for the physical. I'm also looking for control-related issues. That's what really does correlate significantly with femicide when women are murdered, when you have control-related issues. And what I see with Ian Bailey is huge control issues, huge attention issues. He likes to be the centre of attention. He's given too much of the microphone and the camera the whole way through. And there's certain things that are very problematic. The, the timeline of him that night, huge question mark. The fact that there's a mm -hmm. question mark about when he knew it was Sophie who was the person who had been killed. Got right. Cassidy and they're saying it wasn't out on the radio yet when he already knew that information. Correct. So and also, but you're saying it's interesting, right? Because you're talking about the behavior we're seeing now today on the Netflix show and in the podcast of him with those control, controlling the narrative and, uh, you know, getting to be the center of attention. But in some ways that was also existing that day, the way he was writing articles about her death in the case. He was the first one covering the case for the newspapers at the time. 
when it first happened. So he was he was always the one controlling the narrative from the get go. Absolutely. He's the first person on the scene. And if you take Eddie Cassidy's account, he says he spoke to him at 140. Ian Bailey and Jules are at Sophie's at 220. That, that's not a huge amount of time between learning information where he, Eddie Cassidy says he doesn't say who it is. They don't know at that time. It could be a foreign national, he said, but he didn't know the detail. Well, to balance that out, Ian Bailey was a reporter. He's got conflicting accounts about whether he knew Sophie or not. Why for right. something so basic, such a basic detail, is there, are there conflicting accounts? He says on the one, and he said it very deliberately, I didn't know her in as much as I had never met her. She was pointed out to me. I didn't kill her and have no knowledge of the killing. He said it exactly the same way in three different interviews that they used in the Netflix special, that that exact way of saying, like, admitting that he would recognize her if he saw her, but that he had never been introduced to her, that he had never spoken to her. And 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 in some ways it's like distancing himself or or trying, but but it's really particular. It reads like a prepared statement. Right? Like a lawyer it's, wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, this is your statement. This is the only thing that you're saying. And he then says afterwards, I'm an innocent man. But there's a conflicting account from Alfie Lyons, who says that he was with him and he pointed Sophie out and introduced them and they had a discussion. So there are others. And I did find a newspaper clip where he actually said that he knew her too. So whenever there's a conflict around something that really in the scheme of things is not as consequential as other things... I ask questions about that because why create yeah. the distance? And it's so precise. It's not a phrase that you hear often. I didn't know her in as much as I had never met her. Right. I just didn't know her. I knew she was right. in the village. I knew that she had a house, but I, it, I'd never met her. That's it. That's it's all so that formal. Say. It's so structured. It, it, there's a concession and also a distance in it. But Can we don't know when, else? when we don't know exactly at what point he's asked that and whether things had turned hostile at that point. And therefore, depending on how the media and others start to treat you, you can then start to become more formal and agitated um, in terms of, you know, how you respond. I've seen that with families before, by the way, that they originally start off being very open and talking about things right. and sure. they start to realize there's a different play and there's hostility and therefore their tone and, and what they say starts to become more more formal but I do think when we go back to Ian I just want to finish off the point the timeline is is a question mark you've got multiple things that are problematic the, the right. scratches the question mark about the bonfire you know right when Burning that his happened own stuff, that mattress right what was burned is you know our bonfires frequent I presume you don't just load stuff up and go off to the skip or the dump or whatever. But the right. violence is a huge problem because Let they both you. deny it. They both are very, they minimize it. And on one of the occasions, he almost killed Jules. And yes. that is something that is incredibly serious. It's not just about Liz Taylor, Richard Burton, him bringing all these things in to distract and deflect and to normalize that behavior. And when he says, it's my eternal shame, the problem I have watching him deliver that phrase is no real emotion. There was no emotion, no real empathy. 
he almost killed her. And then he says he's not a violent man. And clearly he was. So, and is, and has been. So I would want to know from Sarah what the relationship was like. There's still for me, I mean, in in terms of a proper reinvestigation, I'm not going to say that I believe he did it or he didn't, but there are huge areas that need thorough investigation and the people who knew him best, particularly Sarah and others, starting to look at that, but also the other sightings of other men in that area that were unusual at that time. We don't know how much energy time was put into those other sightings. We don't know how much energy and time was spent really looking at Daniel, looking at uh, Bruno, the the ex- uh, lover that actually Sophie did have and who had stalked her and who had been problematic, even though he was alibied, you know, you would still want to be 100% sure that all these other areas and lines of investigation and people of significance or people of interest have been bottomed out and spoken to. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So can I ask you, so that that creates two questions for me. One, back to Ian Bailey for a second. Also being a wordsmith, he's a claims, you know, he's a poet. He was certainly a journalist for a while. Sometimes I wonder if those turns of phrase are also his flair for the dramatic, right? My eternal shame is also sort of rom- a romantic way of describing it. I mean, it isn't admitting it's fancy to say it, right? It doesn't, it's not, you're right. It wasn't just the way in which he said it. It's that it's almost like a glamour, like he is Richard Burton, the way he says, he says it as if it's a glamorous thing to be eternally ashamed about. Right. But, but in general, I feel his language and use of language was often caught up in his own drama and the and that poetry that is going on inside of him and so and i feel that could sway me either way as someone that it's part of why people didn't like him and they're forced to listen to his poetry in the in the pub from time to time yet that doesn't mean that he did it right that doesn't make you a killer just because you have a weird way of talking i I separately wanted to ask you something else about the crime scene. It just occurred to me when you were talking about Ian's um, either closeness or distance from this woman, I I noticed that there was no attempt to cover up her body or hide the crime scene or prevent people from discovering her. You know, clearly the neighbor was going to see it when she came down the lane the next day. Does that say anything to you about it being someone, if it had been her lover who was stalking her, would you have thought maybe he, 
he'd be the first one they'd look at it. He would have worked harder to hide the crime scene in some way. Well, I think probably what it tells us is that um, whoever it was wasn't forensically sophisticated or criminally sophisticated. And whatever happened unfolded in the moment rather than anything else. And therefore, we can't read too much into that. You know, there is a suggestion that someone cleaned up. Why would they need to clean up? I mean, the body was left out in the elements. Yes, they they didn't cover the body. They didn't put anything over the body. But I don't think that it was a genuine premeditated, I'm going there with murder in mind. Therefore, I have to make sure that she is hidden and that no one finds her. And if that person hasn't been linked to her, why would they need to do it anyway? And I think the lack of forensic sophistication, criminal sophistication, you know, this isn't someone who's done this many times. Um, And I don't think we can read too much into, well, I wouldn't read too much into that, given that it's 1996. If this was a case now, present day, I'd probably be looking at different hypotheses around that. But given it's isolated where she was found and where it will happen, it was so isolated and dark. You know, is this person thinking about all of those things? We know they didn't go there with a weapon. Things unfolded. So too many questions for me around the forensics of what was seized and what was tested. And is it that they were just lucky? There was some suggestion. I think Jim Sheridan says it with Eugene Gilligan on murder at the cottage. This the, The perpetrator was very lucky. Well, there may be an element of that, but there's also a very flawed police investigation. There's also compromised forensics. There's also a body being left out for 13 hours. It wasn't just down to luck in an isolated location. There were lots of things that created, unfortunately, a perfect storm with the case. Right. Still now, I mean, I would want it reopened. I don't know what they have in terms of forensics and so on, but obviously with new technology, forensic genealogy, there's lots of things that potentially... They had those clothes. If they had her clothes, yeah. That's where I would like to see it. I think that even with cold cases, there's still much more that you could do if there is genuine commitment uh, from the police. And we, we have to remember as well, the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions... The way the system works in the UK is very different to here, but it's the director of public prosecutions who makes the decision whether to charge someone or not. And he felt there was no physical evidence that placed Ian Bailey there. And there is still no physical evidence as far as I'm aware. But that, you know, I don't know the case from behind the scenes and what the guard I might have might be very different from what's been discussed on those three productions. There are signs of Sophie everywhere. Her duffel coat still hangs on the back door on a hook next to her apron. There, there is, from my mother, the, the coat. We leave it here because it's why, why we should have taken it off, you know? It's not a museum, well, it's not a pelerinage. Or it's, it's, it's not a pilgrimage, he says. But it is something more than just holidaying. It's about looking for answers. Pierre-Louis told us that just a couple of years ago, he walked into Skullgarda Station to ask them why, in so many years, they'd never wanted to speak to him. He was 15 when his mother died, 
and he'd been to West Cork with Sophie more than anyone. Might he not have been a useful person to speak to? Pierre-Louis told us he stands sometimes at the window of his house, looking out across the valley towards a cottage three miles east, where he knows Ian Bailey is just going about his life. He can't understand why Ian has been a suspect for 20 years, but never faced trial. I met him once in the supermarket. Pierre-Louis didn't meet Ian. He just caught sight of him in the aisle of the Skull grocery store. He didn't recognise me, but... It was like a, a, a freezing shower. And I have a bad evening, and so we, we, we fly back to Paris the next day. But he kept returning to West Cork. And on this trip, at the end of summer 2016, Pierre-Louis arrived just as news broke of a significant development in France. Pierre-Louis had known for weeks, but Ian Bailey learned that day that France had taken matters into its own hands and would be charging him with murder. The French case was fascinating to me in a completely separate way, speaking of the different legal systems, and that they were able to charge him and find him guilty without him ever being there and sentence him with with way less right i mean it was all circumstantial it was all sort of a few steps removed yeah and two very different systems there and you know you raise a good point actually because even with the dpp making a decision about no physical evidence is there a case of circumstantial evidence i have worked numerous cases where that is all we had some cases no body and we've still managed to secure a conviction for me, it still comes down to levels of expertise and having, you, you can still go back, review a case, have a number of experts come in and help you review every aspect to it. Um, and I would like right. to see that happen, yeah. the, the Garda to do that. Then you have the other side of the, the coin, which is the French legal system that operates completely differently. And they charged him in, in absentia and they did convict him all based on circumstantial and the probability, the overwhelming, compelling narrative that it was he and no one else. Um, again, that there are issues there. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, there are some who said it was never going to have a different outcome. So you know, I would need to read all the paperwork and understand the detail of that and know exactly what was presented and by whom and yes, I do think that there are cases where you, when you build, it's like building a house, isn't it? The foundation goes in first that you can show through overwhelming and compelling evidence that the probability is it could only be X. It could only yeah. be this one person. It, there's no room for it to be anybody else. So for me, it comes back down to what can we prove as facts and evidence rather right. than speculation that it all sounds weighted in one way you know the the other question for it around Ian Bailey is why in the libel trial did 11 witnesses say and give evidence that he confessed to them 11 separate witnesses said that he confessed right. to them it's hugely problematic even if you've got one or two but 11 saying that that he did tell them that he did it you know why would you do that it's right. very different from a coerced confession where you're under pressure 
in an environment, you know, if we're talking about the Meredith Kircher case and Amanda Knox, where you're tag teamed right. by Rome detectives for, you know, 12 of them for a 52 hour period. And you're being forced into a position to, he does get questioned right. by the guard eye, but this is him voluntarily telling 11 separate people who have no axe to grind against him. Why would you say, you know, I smashed her head in? Or why would you joke about it? I mean, if you joke so about it, of, that, that's hugely problematic because it talks to your levels of misogyny, doesn't it? And devil may care well, it's certainly attitude and lack of empathy. But, the, but I, ha- I have to be honest, like, for example, there was a woman who told the story of her son who gave him a ride home. And then he came home and said he had confessed to him in the car. and and. I, I don't know. I found I had a lot of questions about whether or not that had really happened in quite. And also, is a 14 year old really in a position to. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't speculate, but but I can just imagine lots of if everyone in town is talking about him as the villain, isn't it? Wouldn't. Wouldn't it be sort of typical of people to say, well, he said this, it was basically a confession. And then 30 years later, it becomes, it feels more firmly a confession than maybe perhaps it really was on the day. I mean, it's, it's all stuff that, or all statements that you would want to question, but there were, there was a couple, the, I think it was the Shelleys who had gone out with them at New Year's Eve and he had They'd all been drinking and he did come out and say, I did it, I did it. it. It, you know, got out of control. You know, why would they say that? There are people who right. seemingly there's no, just right. no reason for them to say it. And I do take into account what you're saying in terms of close-knit community and he is in the frame and everyone's looking at him. But that is a very serious allegation, you know, that somebody did confess to you. And I don't think Ian Bailey actually even contested what Malachi said. I think he said he was just making a joke. But when you're the mm-hmm. prime suspect, you know, it shows you to be completely tone deaf to the situation of a woman being brutally murdered, which is problematic because there's no empathy. It's a callous disregard. And it's highly inappropriate to say that to a 14-year-old boy even in jest. And what I do see from him is lack of empathy and a callous disregard. You know, there's no care or thought for Sophie or for her family. It's all about him, Ali. And that is very Michael Peterson, isn't it? It's all about him, me, myself and I. And that's what sits very uncomfortably for me in terms of the production of all of those from the podcast to murder at the cottage, which is even worse because they have him on camera and he's <sighs> doing bongo drums later on and singing and doing this terrible poetry. Yes. You know, it's cringeworthy. And I think Jim Sheridan's got it wrong to give him so much airtime. That. Yeah. And in fact, the family pulled out, they pulled their interviews because they were so appalled. And if that were my relative, I, I think you've got a responsibility to show all sides. But actually, when you are focusing heavily on someone who is drunk or in drink, singing, playing the bongos, just wanting to hog the limelight, and you're giving them all this airtime, I'm not sure why Jim Sheridan chose to do that, I have to say. It's an odd decision. Do we want to talk about that Jules, who was with him during the podcast and 
uh, had stayed with him for through so much of this. At the very end of the Netflix documentary, there's a short line about her no longer being with him. And, and she has three girls. Is that right? Three daughters? She does. Who, and uh, they weren't all supportive of Ian Bailey. You know, there's one that's estranged oh. from her. Um, because yeah, of her relationship with him, right? Yes. And the domestic violence. Yeah, I and mean, she, she has separated. separated. Yeah, she's finally separated. And that did surprise me. I did actually post about that. You know, seeing it written up at the end of the Netflix show, in May, they separated. I mean, now right. is a great opportunity to properly interview her and for there to be some time distance and perhaps her account might be different. But I do think when there's coercive control, when there's a controlling aspect, when you've got one dominant partner who's featured so heavily, which he clearly has. I can see the dynamic on camera, just the way she's sat there. Um, you really need specialists in there to talk uh, and support that person. And it does take a long time to start to hear that person's own narrative rather than what's been brainwashed and replaced in their head. And so I think there's great opportunity now with Sarah and with Jules. And I would want to interview the daughters as well to see what they had to say. But I, you know, my, my resounding feeling, and I can't help but feel it because I feel it on a cellular level in every way is that Sophie really did get lost in all of this. And although they try and situate yeah. her, I just don't feel that they, any of the productions achieved that. And I have to be honest about that. I don't know how you felt about yeah. it, Ali. Maybe you felt the podcast did a, a, a different job and actually did manage to achieve that. But they all say the search for justice for Sophie. But when you're featuring one man for 70% of it, you, you have to so, have yeah. an honest it's, look at yourself about your your production choices. Right. right. That's exactly right. Is that uh, I, I do believe in their sincerity to want to get justice for Sophie and to be exploring as you, that was a great word to use, right? Certainly exploring what happened at the time and who all was involved and who did their job well and perhaps could have done it better. And certainly they did not portray Ian Bailey as a hero or as misunderstood, right? It's not like Michael Peterson who comes off, you know, certainly uh, having won over the documentarian. But just because he's got that sort of unique, weird thing about him, Ian Bailey does, that doesn't mean that as an audience member that that you need that much of him in in it uh to it 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 felt like it was a story about Ian Bailey and what he's been through it did not feel like the story of what happened to Sophie and that's two very different things and i i i sympathize and understand with what why they ended up with what they had created and there were parts of it that are very compelling. And here we are talking about it. And I think that is all to the good of maybe hopefully one day finding out what did happen to Sophie. But but there's certainly lots of work. It sounds to me like what you're saying is there's lots of roads of inquiry left to pursue and, and things that can be looked after and, and dug deeper in. And perhaps someday we will have the answer. Uh, but But what breaks my heart is her family and her son and that that we don't that they don't have that I, I mean i wonder if they if that french hearing and court 
decision helps them feel better about it. But but I can't imagine him being free in Ireland uh, sits well with them. And still grabbing the microphone, you know, there's there's right. still that. And for them, right. I would imagine that they still want to see justice in Ireland. And I do think that the Garda that are alive, the detectives that are still alive that chose not to speak out, need to be spoken to. You know, they right. still have the knowledge, the paperwork, if there is. And of course, there are major problems with the investigation. Like I said, the informant issues, the you know, the corruption, the bad decisions, the thing, the choices that they made. But I I think it needs an independent to properly look at the case and review it. And perhaps the director of public prosecutions would review that decision if you do have overwhelming, compelling evidence, or perhaps there are other suspects that have been overlooked. That's what I would like to see happen. And I think you said it best that these three productions, although I have said and I've been, I tried to be balanced. There are some good things that they've achieved, which is spotlighting a case that was cold and frozen pretty much. And I hope that for the family, having people ask questions and talk about it and actually pe- place some pressure on the Garda, you know, is an important next step. And I think that's a positive to come out of it. Right. Indeed. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I hope that's what what happens and and i like to feel though that we are as a as someone who's just watching this unfold uh you know and getting to see cases like this and the more exposure we have as a society to these kinds of cases and this kind of uh documentaries it, it helps us see see through the p- point of view of the po- of the podcaster or the journalist to the the things they aren't saying, right? I think we are becoming more educated uh, as to what we're being fed. And hopefully we can see from that, well, you didn't mention this and this part was left out. You didn't even ask those people about it for months. So what what's really going on here in a way that we're all going to come away more educated and we're going to learn more and we're going to demand better work from the investigators involved, from the prosecutors from the media and the way they cover it. I mean, that's my big thing is, is demanding they do better. Absolutely. And, you know, even with the case of PS, the serial killer in in the UK, I found four miscarriages of justice just from asking questions about one case. That is horrifying for me to uncover those things. And I literally you know, I'm professionally embarrassed in every way how these things have been buried. And it really is bothersome and troubling to me. And equally, in each case, uh, I approach with Meredith Kircher and people referring to Meredith's case as the Amanda Knox case, which really bothers me the way that she was framed in the media. And I've just interviewed her, actually, um, and it is very interesting the way the Stillwater movies come out and it was inspired in inverted commas by the, the Amanda Knox saga and Meredith's written out of it. And Amanda Knox right. was an innocent woman who was framed in every way and it's still being referred to like that. Well, if this is another case where, you know, someone who was acting in a way that was stood out in a profile of being odd and being eccentric and narcissistic 
And therefore, a potential miscarriage, well, sorry, a, a miscarriage of justice was avoided because a director of public prosecution refused to charge him because there weren't, wasn't evidence, but he is the local odd bod. Well, we have to think about that. I don't go into these things easily yeah. and just think, well, he ticks all these boxes, so it must be him, because I know how things are framed. And the Garda, there's some serious questions that must be asked about them. And it makes me uncomfortable that the family, Sophie's family, feel that they haven't got justice, the same as that Meredith Kircher's family felt they didn't get justice when a man right. was arrested and convicted for Meredith's rape and murder. Well, he was actually charged with, uh, uh, with, with a sexual assault. And then and let's go, right? I mean, wasn't, wasn't, but wasn't he given such a light sentence and he was. time off on the weekends so that because the uh, prosecutor was so determined to get Amanda Knox that they let the real criminal skate? Yeah, he was actually, they fast-tracked him through the system. He was actually convicted before Amanda's trial ever began. They already had the right perpetrator in, in prison. And he got a much lighter sentence when they were still pushing for 30 years for her. So that's why I always go into these things with an open mind, just because it fits in every way. Right. It doesn't mean to say that, yes, he's violent to women. Yes, he loves the spotlight. He, he's not likable in any way whatsoever. But that still doesn't necessarily mean that he killed Sophie. So we have to be very careful. And I think with Sophie's son, I, listening to him, the fact he still goes to West Cork and he still has hope, hope that the right decisions yeah. will be made and it's a matter of time. Well, I share that too. If if these productions have brought light to the case and it means now we can pr pressure for the Garda to ensure that specialists come in and review the case thoroughly and interview right. the people thoroughly and they are experienced investigators and CSIs and everything is done around the forensics that can be done, then I will feel much more reassured. And I, I feel that Sophie, you know, did get lost. And I always like to end with people thinking about the victim in all of this and not being yeah. overshadowed, particularly when I kept hearing Ian Bailey say, my case, my case. Well, right. it's not actually his case. It's he so is only in the spotlight because of Sophie. And right. again, we have to challenge that language because... He's clearly me, myself and I. And if you have been framed wrongly, you probably would be, wouldn't you? You know, he's not staying silent. He wants right. to clear his name. He's not acting in the well, way most I, people I will want also him to. Comment here, Lauren, that your attention to that case in Australia, uh, which was also maybe in the same time, if not earlier, the Teacher's Pet podcast, the attention that was brought to it all, all these years later has reopened the investigation and did cause the police involved in that case to look at it again and to do more work on it and and the and the community to expect more from them and so that gives me hope that that, that can happen here too and and perhaps we can help sophie's family find the Absolutely. answers they need absolutely and that's a great place to end and and hold people to account you know investigators yeah. Everyone is accountable in the process and the system, and therefore there should be accountability and transparency here. So that that's a great place to end with hashtag her name was Sophie Toscan Duplantier. Let's hope there will be some thorough in investigative questions asked and a review that's independent and that there truly is justice for Sophie, for her son and for all her family. Agreed. Okay.
Well, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much Ali. Go on, you go first. Well, I just always love chatting with you and I am so honored to be able to have this conversation with you and your lovely listeners. So thank you for including and answering my questions because this case, but all of them, I, I now try to see through your lens. And what I love about crime analysts is how you are educating us as listeners to think more and ask questions and challenge ourselves. And what is the narrative that is being fed to me? And, and what's another way to look at it? And and so I I feel really like I am learning a lot from listening to crime analysts. So I'm thrilled and honored to be a part of it. Well, it's always a pleasure talking with you as well, Ali. Thank you very much. And you've just got a new show out at the moment, haven't you? Sweet yes. Revenge that, that people can watch, can't they? It premiered yes, on the weekend. You can, you can find Sweet Revenge, uh, Hannah Swenson Mystery on Hallmark Movies and Mysteries. And if you like, I like to refer to it as sort of more the the TV candy. It's the fun, lighthearted uh, little romance and there is a, a murder that she solves and i just i love um giving people a break from everything that's going on and how difficult everyone's lives must be right now so for me that's that's my fun release it, filming them is just as fun as watching them so hopefully everyone gets a chance to enjoy it absolutely well it's a pleasure chatting with you and i know we'll be talking again so thank you so much for I, your time Thank you for having me and uh, take care of that beautiful little bump. Thank you. Well, what did you make of our conversation? Send me your thoughts on social, on Instagram at Crime Analyst or Twitter at The Crime Analyst, or email me via my website, www.crime-analyst.com. Next week, I'll be deep diving some of the key investigative, behavioural and forensic aspects of Sophie's case with former New York City prosecutor and retired FBI profiler Jim Clemente. So join me back in the intelligence cell for our analysis, and I guarantee you will not want to miss what we had to say. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood.